0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
3: Wednesday morning the 17th of May Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM Are people in Inch County Clare plain ignorant downright racist or both? What really is unbelievable is that they were allowed to blockade roads on Monday evening to keep vulnerable people out let alone keep up their barricade as long as they have The government is negotiating with them this morning Should the Gardaí not be clearing the road to allow people through and get to their destination and arresting the protesters if necessary. Why are we pandering to a group of local people and allowing them to intimidate and reject a very small group of people who are asking Ireland to provide them with international protection from horrors that thankfully will never be experienced in inch or anywhere on this island.
4: Can I just say that the situation we are facing is unprecedented. Over 100,000 people have arrived uh, here from Ukraine and other parts of the world over the last year. And these are people fleeing war, bombs falling uh, from the sky, women and children uh, are being blown to pieces. We see it on the television. And that's what many of these people are leaving behind And it's when you meet them that they're able to recount some of their stories and the concerns about the family members that they've left behind. So we have a duty as human beings to try and do our best to help. But there are huge challenges and there's no getting away from that uh, because what we're facing is unprecedented. Over 100,000 people, that's the equivalent of the entire population of Kilkenny. uh, uh, So it's about trying to find accommodation for all of those people. And we have... Have we largely managed to find accommodation? Um, Yes, we have. Has it been perfect? Uh, No, it hasn't. Have there been issues? Yes, of course, there have been issues.
3: Indeed, there have. Uh, that's uh, Minister Heather Humphrey speaking in uh, the doll yesterday. We started this week off with a message from the Roundtable on Migrations in Our Common Home. That message coincidentally followed uh, the attacks on immigrants sleeping in tents and indeed those tents being burnt out in Dublin over the weekend. Today, we have uh, this somewhat different situation taking place in County clear. The message from the Roundtable on Migrations in Our Common Home was that the existing approach to international protection is not fit for purpose. I don't think there's any doubt of that this Wednesday morning. You may remember they were calling for a publicity campaign to highlight the positive aspects of migration and integration and to challenge racism, whether it's explicit or implicit when confronted with it. Let's speak to Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland once again. And thanks for coming back to us again this morning, Colette. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Are you seeing racism in Clare this week, explicit or implicit?
5: I think it's far more nuanced than that. And I know that's not the favourite answer of anybody. Um, But essentially what we're looking at is a failure of policy. This is a failure of government policy. When... These attacks and these protests started earlier on in the year in areas like Finglas and Dublin, Ballymall in Dublin, East Wall in Dublin and down in Kerry. What we were told by the government, well, the, the minister himself came out and made a statement and said, there is no point in consulting with some people. Now, while that is technically true, there will always be people who are, that, that is their belief, they, you know, that they they hate, they have that they are racist, um, and absolutely there is no point in consulting there. But what that statement did, it was com- it completely discounted legitimate concerns of of residents of areas where. There were people coming in, there was an increase in the population within those areas and there was no certainty that there would also be an increase in the amenities, that there'd also be an increase in things like transport, in things like education supports, in things like accommodation support, healthcare, all of those things. If government had adequately addressed those concerns, there wouldn't have been a foothold for this kind of racism, this type of hatred to actually take hold and to... to yeah, um, to kick off these types of protests. So obviously what happened in Sandwood Street over the weekend was a very extreme example, but I'm not in any way surprised that we're seeing more and more anti-immigrant um, and racist protests. And the reason I'm not surprised mm. by that is because we have completely and utterly failed. Apparently, this year alone, and we're, we're not even halfway through the year, there were 125 anti-immigrant protests in Dublin this year alone. Mm. Now, that is a concerning statistic. But the reason for those is because we just haven't planned for it. If we had better accommodation, I mean, I'm seeing uh, headlines in newspapers that are are pitching refugees against the tourism sector and saying, you know, there are millions being lost in tourism this year because hotel and bed and breakfast spaces Mm. are being taken up by refugees. That's not the refugees' fault. That's the government's fault because they haven't properly accounted for the number of people who would be here, whether that's our domestic population or migrants coming in looking for somewhere stable and sustainable to live.
3: I don't know. I'm finding it very hard to uh, give any credence to the protest that's taking place in Clare. It's very hard to see their arguments as being in any way credible, that they're worried uh, about sewage, or indeed uh, about fire safety if the building has a fire cert. Uh, I'm sure they've much more important things to be doing in their own lives uh, than blocking roads because of concerns like that in a place that other people are going to live.
5: No, I completely take your point. I completely take your point. But I think if government had actually engaged and said, look, this is is what's going to happen, these are the, the systems we're putting in place. So give it your concerns. And if they are legitimate concerns and they say, right, well, we're concerned about fire safety in that building. This is how we're going to address those that, that fire safety issue. We're concerned about an increase in sewerage. I mean, I, the mind boggles, but, you know, OK, this is what we're we're going to do to to support that or to address that. Or this is why this isn't a concern. And this is what's already in place. If they'd actually just talked to people, you get rid of a lot of this. So then... That you can, you know, it's it's not possible to build on it with that's just pure hatred and nonsense that were. If that, were had, if
3: that had been done in advance, do you believe we'd be seeing what we're seeing now with tractors and bales and hay stopping people from finding refuge?
5: Not to the level we're seeing it. No, again, I think there's always going to be some people who will just take an opportunity to be hateful. But I don't think it would have taken the foothold in the communities that it is taking. Like, I, I listened with interest to the, the minister's clip that you played there before I came on, and she's talking about 100,000 people. There were, by the end of last year, there were 120,700 migrants um, who had come into the country. That is the second highest number. In 2007, there were over 150,000 and we didn't have anything like what we're seeing now. Mm. And the reason we didn't have like anything like what we're seeing now or certainly part of that reason is because we recognised we needed them. In 2007, yeah. we were very, very boomy and we were looking for construction workers and the vast majority of that 150 that came in we're going to work in that sector we saw them for the schools. we looked at migrancy from the perspective of we actually need these people here
3: Okay, but the accommodation crisis undoubtedly has been caused because of the number of people coming here from Ukraine Uh, and uh, there's a lot of people, there's no doubt, I don't think the government is saying we can't cope but they are saying we're doing our best and it's not perfect as we heard a few moments ago and yes of course there are issues when there's so many people, so let's say a hundred thousand people have come here from Ukraine but we were told to expect 200,000 you're saying now this morning that uh, if the government had been proactive in communicating with people uh, who were asked to welcome migrants into their community we wouldn't have protests like this it's a very poor performance if you look at it in that realm
5: Oh, absolutely. And I I would say I don't believe that the accommodation crisis is caused by migrants at all. We had an accommodation crisis before last February. February 12 months ago before Russia ever invaded Ukraine we had over 10,000 people accessing emergency oh absolutely accommodation. but the, 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 the accommodation thirty thousand households on sure. the waiting list but there is an, an accommodation crisis it there... hasn't been made worse there's I know. no two ways about that but there's a well, separate
3: Russia... accommodation crisis Colette and that is finding accommodation for immigrants uh, for people seeking international protection asylum seekers in particular and that's why we have 500 people who have been told we can't do it you're going to have to fend for yourself in other words, end up sleeping on the streets of Dublin.
5: Oh no, that that's true. But again, where we're accommodating, and if I could, if I could make air quotes, I would, uh, where we were, where we're accommodating migrants or certainly international protection applicants, it's in warehouses. We are essentially warehousing people. They're in actual warehouses. They're in semi derelict buildings. They're in over-the-probe accommodation couldn't get planning permission to actually turn into apartments proper. You know, this is accommodation that no one else would have taken up or that should have been invested in heavily to actually bring it into proper use. And that's, so it it, it isn't accommodation that would have been put to use for anybody else anyway um, because government wasn't investing in it. They're being put in areas where government hasn't been investing since before the previous crash in 2008. Um, so it's a separate type of accommodation and it's a separate type of crisis. Mm. But again, if this was done for, so say for example, one of the warehouses that's being used, if there was a planning permission put in place to convert that warehouse into apartments and there were going to be 100 people put in there, a um, 100 of whoever was going to buy those apartments or social housing tenants or whatever you want to say, there would have been a process where communities could say, right, where's the rest of the amenities? What else is going to happen here? And there would have had to be, at least at a local government level, some sort of engagement. What's happening now is... Government is scrambling to find any sort of available space that looks like it might have a roof on it and they're warehousing people without any engagement at mm. all. And that is creating that foothold. I'm not saying that's right in any way, shape or form. I, in fact, I completely and utterly, unreservedly condemn it. But what we're, but I understand how it's happening because we just haven't engaged
3: with it at Mm. all. I'm not sure how it's happening to the extent that it is happening in Clare at the moment this morning with government pandering to locals who are acting illegally, blocking roads, given that there was forewarning of all of this. Uh, It's been an issue apparently for some time there. There was a public meeting on Friday and... It appears that the far right were there, they spoke, uh, they uh, read out statements uh, 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 expressing their beliefs about how men coming into the area would be a threat to women and children, completely unfounded, Mm -hmm. uh, defamatory statements uh, uh, and causing fear, no doubt, in in the community. What happened over the weekend uh, before uh, the first of the immigrants started to arrive on Tuesday?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Had government had a presence at the meeting on Friday, they could have combated some of, of what was being said. And you're absolutely right, defamatory, racist lies, let's call it for what it is. I mean, I'm the mother of two sons. The idea that they would need a better life somewhere else and they would be treated in this way is just, it It, it blows my mind. It's so disgusting just mm. because of the fact that they will, please God, grow up to be men, right? You know, we're, these are people's children, they're people's brothers, they're people who are fleeing persecution, either because of who and what they are, their religious beliefs, or the fact that they don't want to go into a war that they didn't cause and had nothing to do with. They don't want to die for a belief that isn't theirs. And if we just had a little bit of understanding for what that that actually means, what that must be like to live in, then we, we might actually engage with it differently. And that was one of the recommendations in our paper that we talked about earlier on in the week about a campaign to actually combat this kind of, of nonsense, this kind of racist lies and disinformation and, and misinformation, that you actually tell people stories and, and listen to them. And, you know, we've seen, we saw two very, very successful campaigns in the last number of years that showed just how progressive Ireland could really be. And they were one on the basis of people's stories. They were one on the basis of people coming out and sharing their lived experiences. Mm. We need to see that for right. immigrants as well, because what we're seeing is a complete Dehumanisation and a complete denial of people's human rights,
3: and the breakdown of law and order. Uh, yeah. I mean, if that's okay with the government, uh, we've uh, local elections coming up next year, and possibly some other elections uh, for that matter. Uh, would it be okay to barricade streets to keep out the government candidates from canvassing?
5: I mean, this is it. We are going to have local and European elections next year, and we're going to have a general election, if not next year, is a year after, uh, for certain. And this is going to be a platform you know, government should be very much concerned about mm. what this means in terms of a political... State. But, but if, I, if I blockade my street... political foothold, we have a serious problem.
3: If I blockade my street to keep out government party candidates from canvassing, will I be arrested?
5: Oh, you can, uh, you can almost guarantee it. Right. You can almost but, but, but,
3: guarantee it. So, so I can't do that, but I can blockade my street uh, to stop uh, some uh, of the most vulnerable people I can think of finding sanctuary.
5: Yeah, and that raises... That raises significant concerns around what we are prioritising as policy.
3: Okay. We we'll leave it there for the moment, Colette. Thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks very morning. much, Michael. Thank you indeed. Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. If you want to comment on that, uh, we'd like to hear from you already. A lot of calls coming in. We'll be coming to all of your comments through the programme. Our phone number is 041 2000. Text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie.
6: Michael
3: Reed, Reed on LMFM. Uh, it's hard not to have uh, spring in your step on a, a beautiful morning like this. There's something uh, about the uh, weather in May when it's summer like. It, it really does make you feel good. Uh, undoubtedly, that was uh, the case on uh, the 17th of May, 49 years ago, uh, because it, it was a, a beautiful May evening when at half past 5 a bomb exploded in Parnell Street 2 minutes later a second bomb went off uh, and that was in Talbot Street uh, 2 minutes later and another bomb went off in Nassau Street about an hour and a half later a fourth bomb went off in the heart of Monaghan town uh, and the combination of the bombs resulted in the worst atrocity on this island during all of the Troubles. 33 people, including a pregnant woman, died and 300 people or thereabouts were injured today. Uh, Reflaying ceremony will uh, occur uh, to remember the victims uh, that will take place in Talbot Street at noon today. Margaret Irwin, spokesperson for Justice for the Forgotten, joins us now and a very good morning to you, Margaret, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. This is a- an annual event. Many people will be aware of that. Hard to believe, so. Uh, I, I, I'm sure you find it harder than most to believe. It's 49 years now since that terrible day.
7: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it has to be remembered that so we have lost so many people. And even since this time last year, we have lost two very staunch uh, supporters, two staunch um, uh, family members. <clears throat> the one was Thomas O'Brien, who lost four members of his family, in the bombing, his brother and his sister-in-law and the two baby, uh, his two baby nieces, and uh, John Malloy, who was a survivor. He was 19 years old and uh, had just done his leaving search. And, um, or sorry, he was doing, he was good, just going to do his leaving search. And uh, they were lost uh, to us as well as so many others. Uh, in, they were lost last June, so two more gone since this time last year. So it's imperative that uh, we re- get, get a resolution to, to all of this uh, by the 50th anniversary next next May. Mm.
3: Do you think that's possible?
7: Well, we hope so, yes. Mm. Um, as you're aware, um, John Boucher, former chief constable of Bedfordshire in England, and his team are investigating um, the, the Dublin Monaghan bombings Dundalk, Castle Blaney, John Francis Green and uh, Seamus Ludlow and uh, we are very hopeful that he's going to have a report I mean he tells us he hopes to have his report in time for the 50th anniversary so yes we are very hopeful of that mm.
3: uh, And what about the legacy bill making? Yeah. It, mm.
7: Yes well that's, that is the fly in the ointment yeah. of course mm. uh, but uh, we're hopeful that uh, he will escape that um, that um, end to all other um, investigations. Of course, um, we're very concerned at this uh, legacy bill which is making its way through Westminster at the moment and the Conservatives are just steaming ahead despite almost unanimous opposition and uh, unionists and nationals are united on this issue. All parties in Stormont oppose it. Uh, The Irish government... um, Opposes it, and the Labour Party in Britain, the US Mm. government, the United Nations, the European Council of Ministers, all of them are uh, very much opposed. But uh, to our surprise, we learned the other day that uh, they're actually hoping to have this um, become law before the uh, British Parliament summer recess. They've already appointed a chief commissioner, the former chief justice of Northern Ireland, Declan Morgan. They have advertised for um, an investigations commissioner, mm. uh, even though um, the law hasn't even been passed that yet. That
3: really took people by surprise, uh, yes, I, I think.
7: Absolutely, mm. yes, indeed. Uh, if the we, law. We are just hopeful that. Um, that uh, the Operation Denton will be allowed to complete because it is so far advanced. Mm, that's and, what I was uh, just going to ask you. I just hope that that will be allowed to, to finish its work. And, of course, ironically, uh, Declan Morgan is the one who um, uh, upheld the appeal, upheld the... the um, Deddy uh, Bernard's case uh, when, it, when the Chief Constable appealed it in uh, to the Appeals Court in Belfast. So uh, we're hopeful that this will, will be allowed mm. to, to complete its work.
3: Uh, I was just going to uh, ask you about that because it's not clear yet, is it, if the law is enacted uh, that John Boucher's investigation will come under that law?
7: It's not clear, no. He has mm. had some... Um, He has had some verbal commitments, but uh, nothing in writing as far as I know.
3: Okay. And Mm. and, and if his report is published, um, what weight will that hold? Uh, Could it lead to prosecutions or will they be ruled out because of uh, that legacy bill?
7: Well, that's not clear at the moment. I don't know. Uh, I suppose um, prosecutions are not something that... uh, is terribly important to most. Uh, I won't say all, but to most families, uh, getting to the truth is what we have always campaigned for over almost 30 years now, and that has always been the priority of of the families to to get to the truth. Um, yes a prosecution i'm sure would be welcomed but um or two <laughs> but uh you know it's not mm. it's not the main focus It has never been the main focus of our uh of our families at all it has always been to try to get to the, to the truth of what happened to their loved ones why mm. it happened why so many people were killed
3: mm. yeah yeah, it's changed and destroyed so many lives uh, with uh, so many questions left unanswered for so long. Uh, and uh, if uh, the report is published by the 50th anniversary, obviously it's a very long time ago and some of those uh, who would have been involved uh, in uh, the killings will uh, have died or uh, will yes. be very, very old yeah. and so on. And mm-hmm. the, yeah. but, but today yes, is... it but
7: uh, of course, you know, it's... Uh, it's usually, the ones who are convicted are usually just the, the minor players anyway, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm.
3: Today is uh, about remembering the victims. Uh, yes. And you'll be joined by Antonishter.
7: Absolutely, yes. Antonishte will be there, and the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Caroline Conroy, the Cahir Luck of Monaghan County Council, Sean Connellan, and um, our uh, giving the oration today will be the journalist Vincent Brown.
3: Okay, uh, and it will be on Talbot Street. People, uh, if they're in the vicinity, can just walk yes. up uh, and uh, show solidarity with you.
7: Well, that would be wonderful. Uh, we're inviting everyone to come and support the families. Uh, 12 noon at the Memorial in
3: Talbot Street, yes. Okay, very good. Margaret, thank you. Uh, uh, Hopefully uh, this time next year uh, we'll have a different conversation, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today. Uh, To remember the 33 people including that pregnant woman, uh, in particular, uh, who fell uh, on the 17th of May 1974, 49 years ago. That's Margaret Urban of Justice for the Forgotten. Michael,
6: Michael Reed on LMFM.
3: FM. Members of uh, the SIP2 trade union working in Tara Mines met on Monday to discuss uh, a number of important issues. Let's uh, speak once again to sector organiser for SIP2, John Regan. A very good morning to you, John. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program once again people will remember you talking to us last week uh, and the concerns you have after speaking to management about the viability of uh, the company and a delay in a drilling license being granted uh, to Tara mines tell us uh, about your meeting and the concerns that your members had well
8: well lucas uh, the meeting is probably um you know, not as important as what has happened since. But look, at the meeting we had with the management uh, dealt with the issue around the prospecting license that they have applied for since December. Uh, and um, just the update position on that is it was granted yesterday. So uh, that's good news to um, see that they're back drilling in areas of the mine that uh, they couldn't drill in for the last six months which obviously impacts on the company's finances and, um, you know, the work that uh, can't be done without a licence. So uh, productivity fell as well. So look, at all of that is positive. Now, the other matter that we were dealing with with the company at that meeting on the 4th of May was the finances of the company and access to an energy EU fund that... uh, basically the government uh, said that the mine didn't qualify for
3: it For environmental Um, reasons if I remember correctly uh, the drilling licence was impacting on uh, the finances uh, and viability as well Uh, But not uh, enough, I take it, uh, from what you're saying, uh, the fact that it's been granted isn't uh, enough to lift that cloud that was hanging over the viability. No, it's
8: not. It's not. And uh, while it's welcomed, the reality is there is restrictions as well on the licence that wasn't there before. And they have to meet certain criteria um, in order to maintain the the, the drilling licence. And also, normally the drilling licence would be a six-year licence the restriction on this one is that they have it for 18 months. So in 18 months, basically, they're going to have to go back around uh, to uh, you know, reapply and renew their licence, and that becomes open to the public as well to make submissions. Uh, and it's not a very good uh, business way of doing, uh, you know, granting and uh, holding up licences. Uh, the reality is, uh, come December 2024, Mm. Uh, the mine could equally be slowed down again in the areas the same areas that this licence is, is covering so uh, we we have a, a window of opportunity here as we would see it in representing the workers to make sure that that licence is granted in December 2024 but also uh, that we talk to the Minister around making improvements there's some outrageous things going on uh, with the granting of licences that uh, is totally unacceptable. Like six months mm. for this one to be granted uh, and it's been sitting on desks for some time uh, is a totally unacceptable uh, way of doing business. So we will be, and we still are, looking for that meeting with the Minister, which will also cover the finances because this company certainly has financial difficulties. The price of zinc and the exchange of the US dollar are two major factors in this company making money. Uh, and both of them are not in a good place at the moment. Uh, the, the price of zinc is way down. So a perfect storm, no, a perfect
3: storm sort of that. thing, John. What, what, what do you want to, the minister to do uh, about eligibility for this EU fund? Uh, I presume the rules are the rules. Are you asking the minister to lobby to change the rules?
8: No, look, first of all, we have to talk to them about what is their difficulties because it, is, uh, it seems to be set up for manufacturing. Now, there's a, a, a broad argument can be made that mining is part of manufacturing. It's supplying zinc into all the manufacturing uh, of a lot, a lot of goods. For example, electric cars require zinc, not only just for the bodies and all uh, cars, whether they're electric or not, but also the components within cars that require uh, zinc as well, so they are directly or indirectly assisting manufacturing, so there is an argument there that i'd like to hear the answers to, but also, the mine is um, part of uh, the just transition because they are controlling and meeting requirements around emissions and uh, how they do their uh, you know the environment. And, and checks on the environment. Uh, so the Just Transition Fund is also uh, a fund that could be made available, uh, and I'd be you know, gobsmacked if, the, if they don't qualify for that fund. Mm. So again, why wasn't that put forward six months ago when the company was looking for assistance? And again, for, on the company side of things, they never heard of the Just Transition until we brought it to their attention. So mm. there's a bit of work to be done here with the Minister and indeed with government to try and get this uh, company um, back up where it was and it is for the last 40 years a very good employer uh, and good for the community uh, and we, we we just need to lobby and uh, press hard for the next 18 months to make sure we are not caught with a, a bigger problem next. You, you, call, uh, you,
3: you, know. you called last week for the support of local politicians. Uh, has that been forthcoming?
8: No, uh, at this moment in time we've had um only two of the parties have contacted us uh, and at least acknowledged what we're trying to do uh but the rest have uh, stayed silent uh it's it's not it's not a good uh, place to be uh with local um you know TDs and ministers uh just ignoring the situation that is a totally unacceptable situation
3: okay John, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us once again. John Regan, SIPTU, Sector Organiser. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us today because uh, a lot of people in touch with us. We were speaking to Colette Bennett at the beginning of uh, the programme about immigration and our approach to it and how that should be changed and indeed how should be people be educated, if you like, to, an information campaign. Uh, Tom in touch saying, great to hear someone talk sense for once about this problem. The government ignored the people and let other fools get into the years of easily led people. That's the far right, obviously. Tom is talking about uh, trying to uh, get into that vacuum that the government has left, as some people see it, so that other people can spin nonsense, lies, uh, and uh, complete downright defamatory things about people. Sean says, I'd like to express my views on the refugee housing crisis, but on second thoughts, I'd better be quiet because whatever I say, I may be called a racist. I hope that's not the case, Sean. I mean there is a a reality to all of this we all know how challenging it is and it is exceptionally challenging Uh, it's not I think uh, ideal, far from it Uh, and uh, I'm sure that everybody would agree uh, with uh, the population of the country and the amount of people coming into it. Uh, We're going to Uh, have to work very hard to make it it work if it's going to work. But what do you do? Uh, I mean, do you say no to people and leave them in war zones? Or uh, do you uh, ignore the international obligations that you have? Because we have to, uh, as a country, uh, provide... Accommodation to anybody who seeks international protection in this country, and if we don't do that, then we face huge fines. Uh, so, there is not much choice in, in all of this, uh, it's how it's being handled that is um, the question. Uh, a lot of people are uh, very, very annoyed um, about this, uh, um, saying com- comments coming, some of them that I, I just can't read. Um, uh, about uh, people because uh, there's very little truth in, in some of the things that people are saying, and I don't think there's any malice in what people are saying. I'm just not sure where they heard it. Uh, Claire says it's more woke virtue signalling fake news by the uniformly liberal Irish media to portray the protests uh, on East Wall, Pier Street, Street, and Claire in a, a bad light um I don't know Claire, um, if you've uh, spent any time in Syria or Afghanistan or Ukraine for that matter uh, might be an idea um, before uh, we rush to judgment uh, on the people who are seeking protection here. Uh, John says, Jonathan Abney says, no need for blockades. Bleated Martin referring to the people of Clare. What did he expect when you have a government riding roughshod over their own people to get a, pack, uh, a pat on the back from their European masters? Uh, as I say, John, uh, the choice is huge fines because you have to uh, follow uh, the rules uh, and fulfil your obligations or leave people uh, in war-torn areas and so on. Uh, we'll come back to more of those comments a, a little bit later on but remember you can text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658
6: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM FM.
3: Sex education as we knew it is about to change uh, for secondary school students. The National Council for Curriculum and Assessment has published uh, the new social personal and Health Education or SPH curriculum. It's to follow four strands, understanding myself and others, making healthy choices, relationships and sexuality and emotional well-being. Let's speak now to Alan Hines, who's uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Catholic Education Partnership. And a very good morning to you, Alan, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. And I think in uh, the run-up to this publication, it's uh, the relationships and sexuality strand uh, that has been of concern to some parents uh, but you're welcoming the publication of uh, the new SPHE curriculum.
9: Yes Michael and good morning to you and your listeners. Um, I've I, I just got to credit you there, you actually named the four strands because a lot of the coverage so far has been very narrowly focused on not just the relationship sexuality element but small elements within that. Um, this is a, you know, a, a part of, very much part of the wellness um strategy in any school uh, for our young people. And I suppose a lot of the concerns have been expressed in the media so far uh, have narrowed in on what are maybe concerns, adult concerns. But we know uh, from working with the NCCA and and our own work that young people informing this or when when they were consulted to inform how this would be uh, put together, they were very concerned with emotional wellness and, and emotional well-being. And they're also concerned with relationships and not just intimate relationships but all relationships and that was the concern that our young people wanted to see addressed in this sbhe program which is much broader than just simply on you know relationship sexuality education or just sex ed. Mm. but yeah there's been some concerns on it Um i think they've they've narrowed in at a few different points so i mean one of them has been uh, the, the pornography point but I think there was some confusion because there were there were some voices who wanted to take a far more radical um, approach on pornography in terms of maybe talking about ethical porn and so on. But these were not NCCA voices; these are the voices that say related to HSE or, or certain academics. Um, but the NCCA have been clear: this is about helping our young people understand the damaging effects that, let's say, pornography or the use of pornography can have. Uh, and the ethical issues that arise from the making of, of pornography as well.
3: And it's so not unusual you know, for young people to be watching it. Uh, the minister was speaking yesterday. Correct, Norma yeah. Foley referenced a University of Galway study. A huge percentage. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but a huge percentage, apparently, of 10 to 13 year olds, particularly boys, access pornography on their phones.
9: Correct. And what the curriculum is going to be aimed at doing is to try to help them understand the effect, the, the mal effects. That, that kind of consumption and use of porn is having on them. Now I will say look, schools cannot solve this particular issue by themselves nor can parents and it can be popular for policymakers sometimes to kind of narrow in the focus and say well schools will deal with this or it's the responsibility of parents but we can just look across there. France is about to bring in new laws and regulations from September try to limit accessibility to pornography online porn by young people. Now, yes, it's not going to be perfect, but they are at least trying. And I suppose the question would be, where are our own policymakers in terms of trying to, to affect the supply of this, even if schools try to educate and parents try to do their bit as well? Mm. So you can't just be left to the schools to, to address this issue.
3: D- discussing it's, pornography with um, mm-hmm. secondary school uh, children uh, has proved to be controversial, but not uh, as controversial as gender identity, I I think it's true, Uh, the new curriculum will require students to appreciate how sexual orientation and gender identity are experienced and expressed in in diverse ways.
9: Yes, there has been uh, some concern expressed about that. Uh, Look, in Catholic schools, we will present the Catholic understanding and view in these matters, but we'll do so alongside other views as well. And teachers will be encouraged to try to assist their, their students in in understanding both ideas and critically engage with both. Um, I will say, look, the NCCA, you can see the earlier draft last autumn was far more radical um, and in response to parents, uh, feedback from parents and other groups, the NCCA removed certain aspects, let's say, in terms of talking about cisgender or gender spectrums. Mm. um, These were removed from the the curricular specification. So, you know, there there was a reflection of some parental concerns but the ideas are there. Uh, they're in our culture. Um, you know, young people are, are interacting with these ideas as well. Best maybe to bring them into the schools to critically engage with it. And as I said, we'd expect Catholic schools to give a positive and confident uh, presentation on the Catholic view on these things. Well, the schools... So with a deep respect for the individual. I mean, that's the starting point mm. of everything in a Catholic school. Is the individual dignity of each individual person and the respect and support that they're entitled to.
3: The, the schools will be obliged to, to deliver this curriculum, uh, but parents will have the option of withdrawing their children from the classes, won't they?
9: Correct. And some campaigning groups were looking to limit that right from parents. And we
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
9: We're very strong at our submission in support of parental rights in that regard because our education system is grounded in the idea that parents are the primary educators and the church stands full square behind that idea. Um, so we were very strong ourselves and the other Catholic bodies in defending the right of parents to withdraw their child from this or any class. Um, they're fully mm. entitled under Section 30 of the Education Act to withdraw their child from any aspect of the school.
3: OK, but so, uh, as you say, uh, there's four strands to this, uh, and if yeah. parents uh, withdraw their children from the SPHE classes, uh, they'll withdraw them from the relationships and sexu- sexuality strand uh, that they may be concerned about, but they'll also withdraw them from the understanding myself uh, another strand, which will look at self-identity, family, peers, culture, gender identity, uh, and race, uh, abilities, disabilities, religious beliefs and worldviews. Uh, there's the healthy choices, which will look at uh, drugs yeah, I, I and mean, nicotine. Fairness, I don't and
9: see parents. I mean, a lot of those things are, are mm-hmm. things I think where parents would, would want their children to be yeah. I- interacting but with. Could you pick and choose Well, what I would say to parents is go in and and talk to the school. If they have concerns, contact the school Um, and, you know, allow the school to talk through maybe what the approach is going to be. It's a massive menu. You've got to understand this is a short course. Um, It's not going in depth into a lot of these areas. It's it's a course that tries to cover an awful lot of ground. Um, But I would just say, look, if parents have concerns, contact the schools. The other thing, you know, teachers Mm. are acutely sensitive that schools are there to serve parents in the parents' role as educator. Our teachers are not, you know, there's culture of education, teachers are respectful of that. Mm. And to a certain extent, you know, we've trusted our teachers so far, we just need to continue to trust their professionalism and everything else. You're not guiding
3: guiding parents though in in that respect, but on the other hand, you're happy, satisfied uh, that uh, children with a, a Catholic faith attend these classes.
9: Well, what we say is, as I, you know, and again, we're very strong in our own submission, was the we want to defend the ability of Catholic schools to propose a Catholic view on these matters. So that's, you know, so anybody attending Catholic school should expect that the children uh, will, will have that Catholic proposition laid in front of them in dialogue and encounter with other points of view as well. And that should be a respectful dialogue and encounter. And like I said, we're, we're trying to get our young people and a bit of respect for them. They are, you know, teenagers, becoming young adults, we're trying to help them to critically engage in an age-appropriate way with these ideas. Okay. And that's what we'd, we'd, we'd um, hope our schools would do, and that's what I'm confident our teachers will do. I will say one of the big problems with all this, which the NCCA themselves identified, is that teachers need more support in fulfilling this role. There hasn't been adequate training in this area to date. Um, you know, There's two hours kind of been allotted for this, but that's not sufficient mm. to actually prepare teachers for the full range of this. So we need a lot more support for our teachers. And certainly, you know, I think the the Minister needs to look at that issue, how, how best to actually train teachers for this work. Because currently, there is a deficit of of support for teachers and teachers themselves are, are kind of languishing a bit because they're not being adequately supported.
3: Okay. I, I suppose we'll hear from teachers in due course in that respect. That's obviously a concern you have on behalf of uh, the pupils. Uh, but uh, it's uh, going to be interesting to watch how, how it's received and uh, whether the impact of this education will be positive uh, on children. Alan, thank you very much indeed for joining thank us. Thank you, Michael. Cheers. Alan, thank you, Alan Hines, Chief Executive of uh, the Catholic Education Partnership. Now, some more of the comments coming to coming to us today. Robbie in touch says, Michael, the holding thing is simple uh, when it comes to immigration as far, as far as he's concerned. He says, I know people on the housing authority list for years, uh, and that's why a lot of people aren't happy. None of the TDs can see this, but you wait and see the next election. They'll wake up. Uh, no more people uh, will be housed and uh, protesters should be removed by the cops and the army and the government uh, need to get our own people sorted. Thank you, uh, Robbie. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, a couple of issues are being Uh, confused there. Um, What we're talking about here is giving emergency accommodation to people coming here from uh, war-torn areas uh, and places where it's not safe for them, whether they're being tortured or threatened in some sense or whatever. We're not talking about housing them. It doesn't impact on the housing waiting list. Somebody else says, Michael, why is it all men? Where are the women and children? Uh, There's loads and loads of women and children. Most of the people coming from Ukraine are women and children. Um, But what we're seeing is um, objections to when there's men. Uh, There's nothing wrong with the men. They've come from places other than uh, Ukraine, for the most part, uh, from terrible places like Syria or Afghanistan, Yemen. Um, Just turn on the news someday uh, and see the uh, situations that people are living in, or uh, they may be, Uh, from the LGBTQ plus community and living in countries uh, where they could be killed because of their sexuality. Things like that. Um, And that's uh, why uh, there are groups of men. Uh, They're being treated differently from the Ukrainians. um, And that's why you see men sleeping on the streets um, because they're not Ukrainians. That's why you see men uh, in Clare, um, because they found somewhere for them. Uh, Betty Daly uh, has a different perspective on this. She says, Michael, when we had nothing, we had a cave meal of fall for everyone, uh, and uh, since then we've got on our uppers, and we've become a nation of mangy devils. We have lost all of our compassion and caring, uh, our caring nature. Thank you, Betty Daly. Thank you, indeed, uh, for that. Um, Claire, uh, good people in Claire uh, says uh, somebody uh, they're male asylum seekers. They're not from the Ukraine, but you put the spin on things as usual. No, um, we said from the outset they're international protection applicants, asylum seekers um, and that would mean they're not from Ukraine. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, that makes sense but that's the language that's used, if you like. Ellen says, it's the government's fault. You won't see any tents in Dublin 4 or in Hoth. It's not the fault of these people that are being pushed in everywhere, says Ellen. Um, And Deirdre and Abbott says, would fines be any worse than what's happening? It's totally unrealistic to expect a small country like Ireland to take thousands of people in. Why do a lot of these people bypass other countries to come to Ireland? It's a myth, Deirdre. Um, These people are are running for their lives. Um, I don't know. Uh, How would you feel if uh, we landed you in the middle of Ukraine in one of those places that you see being blown to kingdom come? every single day on your television. Alright Deirdre we leave it there. Thank you uh, to everybody who's been in touch if you want to make comment for 2000 that's the telephone number if you want to ring text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie
6: Michael Michael Reid on
10: on LMFM. Minister, I want to raise the alarming issue of loud um, local authorities being forced to close applications for housing um, adaptation grants, housing for the elderly and mobility aid grants due to lack of government funding. There's currently 600 people on the waiting list, um, shamefully, and many have been waiting years, but there'll be more vulnerable, vulnerable people over the forthcoming months. The door will have been effectively closed In their faces. Um, It doesn't make, I'm sure you'll agree, it doesn't make financial sense in the long term that um, it'll cost the state more where people will be forced into respite etc. Now, just before anything said about funding, just to let you know that loud local authorities have actually drawn down all and any funding available. They're now forced through the situation that they've closed applications for the most vulnerable in society, people who want to live at home but need their homes adapted. Will the government, given the circumstances, 600 on the, the waiting list, applications now have been closed, the most vulnerable people? Will the government consider giving uh, additional Thank and you, adequate Time funding to source to reopen and to deal with the
3: 600 vulnerable people waiting for home adaptations. Now that's local Sinn Féin TD, de Munster speaking in the Dáil. yesterday. Deputy Munster is on the line. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Where are we? The 17th of May and all the money for the year has been spent. Uh, What are these adaptation grants? What are the 600 people on the waiting list waiting for?
11: Well, they'll be waiting for, uh, for um, a combination, whether it's housing adaptation grants, and that's to carry out works to make a home more suitable for accommodation, say for a person with a disability. And the mobility aid grants would be to, to help people or to help carry out works for persons with mobility. So, say, for example, I mean, a lot of people that apply for these grants would be people that, um, you know, are have serious arthritis, can't get up the stairs, can no longer get into a bath, people that are in crippling pain with arthritis, people with heart conditions, people with COPD, people confined to wheelchairs. Um, all of the most vulnerable people that want to stay at home and people, want to live independently.
3: Pe- people who may have had a, a stroke uh, and absolutely, yeah, could co- yeah. very easily live independently with a stairlift, let's say. Yes, or, or, that's
11: exactly. A uh, stairlift, a wet room downstairs, yeah. you know, or in a, some people need an extension with a downstairs bedroom and um, a, a wet room as well. But what it does, it, it, it allows them to live independently with the support of their family
3: right?
11: Um, and live at home,
3: and people that maybe want some, to do that. Maybe some home help as well. But, yes. but, but if they don't adapt the house, if they don't get the work done, mm. uh, and many people won't afford it, uh, so if they don't get the grant, in some circumstances, it's going to result in people having to go to nursing homes.
11: Yes, yeah. Or staying longer in respite care. So it makes no financial sense whatsoever not to, to properly fund the, the grants because it does cost the state more in the long term. But you hear the government all through the years saying they want people to live independently at home and, you know, that the supports are there. But the reality is the supports are not there. Um, there's There's 591, to be precise, um, people on the waiting for the grants, and they're actually working off the 2021 applications. That's how bad it is. And then everybody that comes, you know, today, tomorrow, and the day after, the door is effectively closed in their face because applications have been closed. All right. If you're, go- wa-
3: if you're waiting two years mm-hmm. uh, for an adaptation grant, um, in some circumstances. Uh, that's going to result in people having to go to a nursing home, yeah. uh, and yeah. in some circumstances, it's, it's going to result in people passing away before the grant is processed. Yeah,
11: yeah. I mean, you've people. I've many of the time had people in my constituency um, clinic, and you can see the the pain etched in their faces. They're saying that, you know, a, a son or daughter has to walk behind them going up the stairs and they're clinging to the banister and they have to stop halfway to catch their breath. Or you have people trying that just can't get into a bath anymore, that literally cannot get into the bath and they're waiting. And you had some people that maybe the their daughter or, you know, yeah a relative has to take them over to their house to shower. That's how bad it is, you know, Mm. and it's 2023 and we're living in that type of situation.
3: Or has to lift them into the bath, whether whether they're able to themselves or or not.
11: Yeah, yeah, and the dangers that that would, you know, cause if somebody was to slip or, you know, one person trying to to manage that by themselves. It's it's horrendous, really, but the funding that they got... Um, it was only increased by 2.3% for this year, but your building costs have gone up by, by 30%. That's
3: true. Um, oh. You raised this in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, I think mm. we can hear the response uh, on behalf of uh, the government. Uh, this is Minister Kieran O'Donnell.
12: Uh, Deputy Minister. you will be aware there was a recent allocation for uh, government funding for the housing adaptation grants. Uh, I take your point in, time, in terms of waiting lists. Uh, I currently—I've just received uh, a a review being carried out by my department on the housing adaptation grants, looking at them, which I'm giving it serious consideration at the moment. And it's something we're very conscious of with the local authorities. But all I can say is, an allocation funding has been given quite recently. For the current year, I'm looking—I've just received a proposal from my department. I'm looking at a review of the housing adaptation schemes themselves and very much will take on revising revise the points you make. Okay. okay. What,
3: what do you make of that, Imelda Muster?
12: Uh, look, they, these grants
11: were introduced in 2007, Mike, and there's always been a carryover year on year. There's always been waiting lists. Now, does it take them 16 years to learn how to adequately, adequately finance them? They know fine well. those waiting lists are building and building Mm. and at the same time they come out with the spiel of we want people to live independently and yet you know even this year 2.3 percent of an increase in the funding when they know building costs have gone through the roof so up until now they haven't been taking it serious and I hope you know at this stage that that review takes on board the reality of the situation and that people are languishing on waiting lists,
3: and there's Someone no grants could. available for seven months of the year. I, 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 that's the situation this year. Is that unusual?
11: Well, what the council had said, no. I mean, this happened before in Loud Local Authority. They had suspended, in, suspended it in 2009 and 2010. You know, so it's as I said, it's it's happening all the time that the they, the volume. Now, what Loud County Council had said was that. Um, they were suspending applications for the scheme due to vast oversubscription. But sure, that sends a clear message that more people need their homes adapted, you know, and they said this uh, subscription that they, you know, the amount of people exceeds the budget Mm. and their capacity. But the government have known this all along. They literally have known this all along, that year after year, local authorities, people waiting two, three, four years, um, for adaptations that they desperately need. Mm. Now, whilst I welcome the fact that they're finally reviewing the, the housing adaptation scheme, but let's hope they they put money where their mouth is well, you know, and money. fund it adequately.
3: I mean, now would be the time if they're going Absolutely, to do something yeah. because of all of the money that they're contemplating how to spend because there's so much of it over. Well, that's what They're saying
11: the, the country's awash with money, mm. like, you know, and yet basic things, basic things like allowing... Um, elderly and people with disabilities live independently in their own home, and yet, you know, it's not funded adequately, it's not funded sufficiently, and they're letting people languish on waiting lists. It's, it's, it's a desperate situation, you know. It's, they've known fine well for years that they, there's nowhere near sufficient funding that they give.
3: Mm. It's a hard situation that people find themselves in there's no doubt uh, and uh, I think in previous years you'd say well you can only spend what you have uh, uh, and there's <laughs> no doubt that continues to be the same but there's plenty of money uh, that you could add to it uh, available yes. now. and the political will stuff. was
11: there certainly yeah but they have to address yeah. it, they can't keep continue to keep ignoring it.
3: Okay, thank you indeed for joining us today. Sean Fein TD for Loud and Dees the the Monster. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Ireland is uh, to introduce health warnings on labels uh, on products containing alcohol. A complaint has been made uh, to the EU Commission by uh, the alcohol industry as a, a result of uh, those plans. Uh, we're going to hear now why we should be warned about the dangers of cancer with Jennifer Howe, Head of Policy with Alcohol Action Ireland. A very good morning to you, Jennifer, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Yeah,
13: thanks for having me. Yeah, does, do, so, does, dr- um, does
3: drinking cause cancer?
13: It does, it does. I suppose, look, the, it's not the science around this isn't up for debate. You know, we've known for you know, more than 40 years that alcohol is uh, carcinogenic, so you know, even light to moderate alcohol use can carry a significant risk of cancer. So I suppose the science around all of this isn't really up for debate, even though the alcohol industry will, will tell you that it is and will try and, you know, um, put out other information, alternative facts, I think they call them. But look, um, just for a bit of context for your listeners, you know, labelling regulations are part of the Public Health alcohol um, 2018. So that's five years ago now, and we've already gone through, you know, all of the debates around this. We had an extensive process of consultation and examination at the EU level. And now after five years, we're, we're getting close, you know, to this being implemented. But really, it's no surprise that the industry is essentially trying to throw a spanner in the works here. And, you know, these complaints are just a tactic because the EU Commission has already told Ireland that, you know, we can go ahead with this. And um, the EU Commissioner for Health and Food Safety mm. told us that this was justified on health grounds, and that um, to, to, to to go ahead, you know. So these complaints are really an industry tactic for more delay, for more supposed debate. Even though, you know, the debate there is no debate around the science. The health information labels are to inform consumers about risks.
3: How, how high? How high is the risk?
13: So, you know, there, there, there there's, a, there's a new evidence from the World Health Organization is that there is no safe level, of, you know, there's no safe level of alcohol use, actually. Do you know? And I know it's a message that people don't like to hear. No, but,
3: but, but what's the message from the World Health Organization about cancer? How high is the risk of getting cancer as a result of drinking yeah, alcohol? Yeah,
13: well, we do know, I mean, you know, I suppose it seems like you're trying to, 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 to cause some sort of a, uh, debate around this again and there is a risk of cancer. Like we do know that that one to two drinks per day carry a significant cancer risk. And actually there's is, a very uh, low public there's very low public level awareness around this. And the Irish Cancer Society has done surveys about this mm. and um, is, is, very uh, no, about sorry, just one, one more statistic. About half of all alcohol related breast cancers in Ireland arise from low-level alcohol use. All right. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's a factual statement, you it, know. Is, so. there a, is
3: there anything wrong about trying to create a debate around it, Jennifer?
13: Well, there's nothing wrong about But Okay, I we right.
3: Well, we well let's, let me continue to be. ask my questions. Is the risk any higher than walking down the street uh, and inhaling the fumes uh, from motor cars or industry?
13: But sure, look, that's a completely uh, sorry, to, I mean, we know that alcohol is a carcinogenic product; it causes cancer.
3: But I know and most people drink. I know most people drink, and people live till a hundred. Uh, the, the 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 complaint that the Italian uh, uh, arm of uh, the drinks industry, uh, which seems to be spearheading this, is that these labels would be dis proportionate and an unjustified barrier yes, to trade. But
13: sure, but sure, of course the producers would say that because they're the ones that are going to have to put the label on it and they're the ones that sell alcohol and they don't want, the alcohol industry doesn't want anything that will eat into their profits come about. Look, this is about informed consent. But it's, a, it's go a, out and a, buy alcohol. They can drink it. This is just about trying to bring a little bit of balance into okay. a system that's completely imbalanced. Okay, Have can, can we can we
3: just can we discuss it, Jennifer? I mean, can I put the we odd can, point? Can, can, yes, can yes. I put the odd point to you? Because uh, I mean, when they say it's disproportionate, uh, they're comparing it to the labels on cigarettes, for example. Uh, uh, is the risk uh, from drinking alcohol as great as that if you smoke, uh, in terms of getting cancer?
13: Well, there are actually studies that show that compared the level of risk with alcohol, and I think it's, and, and cigarettes actually, a study, this was a study carried out around it, and I don't have it in front of me now, but I think it was a bottle of wine was equivalent to five cigarettes or something like that. They, they did an equivalent. So there have been studies done to show exactly. And I suppose, you know, if you've seen the labels, like the industry is putting this stuff out that it's like the cigarette It's not at all like the cigarette labels. Like if you've seen these r- labels, you'll realise they're a very modest measure. It's small wording on the bottle, uh, on the back of the bottle. You know, you turn it around, it's down there, very small. And again, this is all watered down mm. by an industry with, you know, commercial interests and predatory marketing practices. This is just to warn people drinking alcohol in pregnancy can lead to FASD. Um, we have an event later today that's going to have the Irish Cancer Society involved hmm. who are very concerned about this and have been, you know, backing this all the way. We have the Health Research Board, we have the HSE with the Irish Liver Foundation. Everyone in the yep. health community wants it and the public wants it too. You okay. know, more than seven people want actually you know how many? It's, it's not really a big deal to put a little many? H- h-
3: how m- how many people want it?
13: So we did a survey. So that more than seventy percent of the public were wanted to be informed about about um, about these these things on. on
3: people always say they want to be informed about things, but uh, tell oh, me, what's t- 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 what
13: is the problem with being
3: informed? I, was, I was Well, there's a there's a, a very there's a very obvious problem with uh, being informed. Uh, of a risk of cancer people will stop drinking alcohol I know that's what you want uh, but is no, 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 no. It, 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 it is it uh, proportionate no, to the risk and and and, yes, and if I could just if I could just finish the point because I didn't want to put a question to you Jennifer uh, 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 it, it extends further than this country as well uh, because uh, if I want to buy a French bottle of wine or an Italian bottle of wine or whatever it is uh, that has been produced elsewhere if it is to be imported into this country it's going to have to have these labels that tell me if I do be foolish enough to drink it it's going to cause me cancer.
13: Well, I suppose you can choose to ignore that. I mean, like, if it, it's like you say with the cigarettes. But, but, but
3: what about they're the manufacturers? What about the producers? Why do they have to uh, comply with Irish law? This is the free trade argument of being a member of the European Union. If uh, they're exporting uh, their product to Ireland, they're going to have to produce labels that they don't need anywhere else.
13: Well, I suppose the other side of that argument is it's funny that people all, often complain about Ireland not being allowed to do things because of EU regulation. Here's the case where we've actually been given permission to have control over our own laws and something that we see is really important for public health in Ireland and it's been now thrown back and saying, oh, we're going against EU regulations. We went through a, an extensive process in the EU and we were given this permission and, you know, this is a positive thing, as I say, for for people just to have that that information there. Because like I suppose most people, I think, want to be fully informed about what they're putting into their bodies, like, you know. So this isn't anti-business, it's just pro-health. People can still buy the products, you can drink them, just be more informed. And it's like, you know, the cigarettes, you say. You, you, people still smoke, people still buy cigarettes, they, but they know, they know now. Like you know, we're we're alcohol. We're, we're mm. alcohol
3: they're addicted, alcohol, though. They're you know, they're addicted. They're addicted, and therein uh, lies the dilemma for people. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, they will give up smoking because they are highly carcinogenic. Uh, alcohol, I don't think, is highly carcinogenic. People aren't uh, addicted, uh, but you're putting them off. You're putting them off consuming and purchasing a product that has been produced here and elsewhere.
5: So a
13: recently pub- um, published study in The Lancet found there's four harmful commodity industries in the world. That's tobacco, ultra-processed food, fossil fuel, and alcohol. And they are altogether responsible for a third of deaths globally, annually. So, you know, it's really up to the public health and government to protect people's health from harmful mm-hmm. industries and their tactics. And I suppose all the points that you're putting to be are industry arguments, and it's a kind of a rerun of an old argument from an industry that's doing everything it yeah. can and in its power.
3: But I mean, what 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 does that code. study in the Lancet mean? Does it mean that a third of the people who die today across the world will have died from cancer because they drank alcohol?
13: No, not ca- no 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 not specifically. But that's cancer. the point. A third but of that's all the point. No no no, a third of all deaths globally. Yeah, they are come from harmful commodity industries. the yes. four mm. that I named. Mm. So uh, we do have the figures for how you know the global. No, disease. I
3: know, but we're talking Carnes about
13: per day die. Sorry, of, can- of of, of uh, sorry, alcohol. Release. I know, but we're
3: we're we're talking about whether it's proportionate to put labels on alcohol saying this will cause you cancer.
13: Well, I suppose, you know, if, if, if something does cause cancer, why not know? I suppose it's about right. The right you know, this is, a, this is a basic human right, the right to know, the right to know what you're putting into your body. And I, I suppose it'd be interesting to see what your, what your listeners think. I suppose this is a consumer rights issue as much as a, a health issue and a right to know, and it's kind of putting the genie back in the bottle. Like, the, the most shocking part of this is that people don't know that, you know, because we've been marketed to so heavily by the alcohol industry all of our lives the cradle to the grave it's constant bombardment that everything's fine there's no problem with alcohol it's all great you know but there is another side and that's all you know there's just a bit of balance required you know we all enjoy a drink but it's it's to know it's to know what what can happen and what the risks are and that's all these labels are a very modest measure to help people to be informed to make decisions about their own health and well-being.
3: Okay. Thank you, Jennifer. We will be interested Thanks, to hear from our listeners as always. Thank you very okay, much indeed. Great stuff. Thank you. That's Bye-bye. Jennifer Ho, Head of Policy with Alcohol Action Ireland. And you are welcome to let us know. O four one nine eight three two thousand text or WhatsApp O eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Email Michael at LMFM Helen says we're getting to the stage that only one thing. Uh, the, the only thing we'll be able to eat or drink without the risk of cancer will be water and grass. Thanks, Alan. I'm not sure if anybody disagrees. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks, Tom, as always, for your text. He says, Michael, here's a thing. If you started to manufacture a product that you know causes cancer that people get addicted to? The only reason you'd keep making it is for money and greed. Am I wrong? I don't think so, Tom. Uh, Another caller texting saying, my mother is 90 and enjoys her drink. My sister-in-law doesn't drink. Uh, and she uh, got breast cancer. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us. Now, uh, there's been a, a lot of concern, as you know, about the attacks on asylum seekers in Dublin over the weekend and indeed about the protests that are taking place in Clare again today.
6: It is over a year since the brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's over a year in which government could and should have pulled together a more coherent, coordinated and joined-up response to this crisis. You speak of a cross-governmental approach, but there's no sense of leadership from the Taoiseach on this. Instead, we heard him seeking to deflect blame, it appears, onto policing, onto the Gardaí, when this is an issue about cross-departmental support for the Department of Integration in supplying housing. I've been pushing for the use of, of, of sites in my own constituency, Jury's Hotel. And Balls Bridge, Bagot Street Hospital, empty office building that could be scaled up to provide accommodation. You speak of the Department of Defence. What about the use of empty barracks? What about the use of empty housing and Department of Defence sites? And your government said in January that there would be 700 modular homes in place for refugee accommodation by Easter. And again, we just haven't seen it. So where, Minister, is the sense of urgency? Where is the massive level of state intervention that we saw put to such good effect during COVID? Where is that sense of coordination and of support? And where is that leadership, crucially, from the Taoiseach's department? Thank
3: you. That's the leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic. You
4: know, we're doing everything we can. But the point is here more people have been coming, a total of 100,000. That's a lot of people in the last year. So we have been working, we have been dealing with it, but as you well know, uh, we need uh, more accommodation and we're doing everything to uh, to achieve that.
3: Heather Humphreys was on duty for the government yesterday and the minister heard many complaints about how the government is overseeing immigration at the moment
12: i detest racism or anybody who whips it up and what was done the you know to meet desperate people who are homeless on the streets with hatred and fire is appalling and has to be condemned but i am telling you minister i was talking to people this morning in the locality who were equally appalled who oppose absolutely what was done but they told me there are many, many vulnerable people. Remember, there are 800,000 people living in deprivation in this country, and many of them are heavily concentrated in working-class areas like Pier Street. This person told me that the local population has been more than halved over the last 20 years uh, because they cannot afford places to live in the area. While gleaming new blocks uh, spring up around them, uh where employees of twitter or whatever well-paid people who can afford them they can't afford to live in their own area and at the same time right beside that site an area designated for social housing five years ago still hasn't been redeveloped this is a problem uh, so, there are neglected working class communities and people who are being driven out of their own areas because they cannot afford to live there you, because Deputy of the President failure Trump. to deal with dereliction and to provide the social and affordable housing. And that creates the conditions that the far right then come in and exploit. And we need to address that as well.
3: That was people before profits. Richard Boyd Barrett.
4: Minister Humphreys, to conclude on this. Thank matter. you. Uh, well, I think, Deputy, you shouldn't be given any excuses to the far right because what they are because 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 uh, what they're doing is wrong we condemn that and can i just say that uh, the the far right protesters do not speak for the majority of the people of this uh, country they do not and i agree with you there but but we, we shouldn't be We shouldn't be giving them, uh, you know, credence and we shouldn't be giving them
1: excuses.
3: The minister to conclude, but it didn't end there.
1: The reality is that in a first world, wealthy state, we have endured a housing crisis for more than a decade. Irish people find themselves homeless. Irish people find themselves sofa surfing, living in their mother's box room without hope, without prospect. And now, Count Corla, we have the additional... Uh, crisis of people arriving to our shores, decent people seeking sanctuary here, mm. and they are left on our streets. That is a Thank scandal, you, that is shameful. Is and responsibility for it lies with those in government. So I want to ask Count Corla that Ministers O'Brien and O'Gorman present themselves to the House, set out their plan now to get every person off the streets, to finally resolve this outrage and take questions on those matters.
3: Sinn Féin, President Mary Lou Macdonald there.
8: in April of this year that the High Court found that the state was in violation of Article 1 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU when it comes to its treatments of migrants in this country. Article 1 has 10 words. It simply says human dignity is inviolable it must be respected and it must be protected. In the months that's passed and this weekend, we saw tents continue to mount up outside the International Protection Office on Mount Street to the point where it then became an attack of absolute unimaginable magnitude um, that should be condemned by all parties. It was Absolutely shocking to hear the Yes, they say that not only were those people not afforded accommodation, but that we could no longer afford them protection. Can uh, Carlo I believe that we need a full debate on this issue.
3: All right, that's the Social Democrat TD, Gary Gannon. This debate hasn't started yet, but a lot of TDs had to say something about the current situation in the Dáil yesterday.
12: A violent attack on an encampment of asylum seekers. Tents and belongings burnt out. Many believe that it is only a matter of time before Ireland's far right claimed their first killing. Now, this government made asylum seekers an easy target. You made them an easy target by forcing them to sleep on the streets. You made 500 other asylum seekers do so as well. You ignored warnings that your sleep on the street policy might lead to something of this kind. Kilcola, we need an urgent debate on the issue of the provision of accommodation for asylum seekers and we need it this week.
3: Bad and all as things have been. Mick Barry of People Before Profit sending a shiver down the spines of many listening to him yesterday.
14: Minister, the Taoiseach said something extraordinary yesterday. He said that he didn't believe there were enough Gardaí on the street in Dublin to protect asylum seekers living in tents. This was an astonishing statement for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was incredibly cynical. It's not the job or duty of Gardaí to ensure that people who come to this country seeking safety and support have a secure place to stay. It's your responsibility as government to do that. And you're failing in that legal and moral duty. Secondly, the Taoiseach's comments were also incredibly worrying because they seem to imply that we should now get used to seeing hundreds of asylum seekers sleeping rough on our streets. Was the Taoiseach telling us that this is the new norm? Is this what your government is now willing to accept? Minister, the government cannot and should not outsource its responsibility to protect asylum seekers to overworked and under resourced
2: Thank you, Deputy. After
14: more than a year of this crisis, when is the government going to live up to its own responsibilities and stop deflecting blame for this catastrophic failure?
3: That's the leader of uh, the Social Democrats, Holly Kearns. uh, As I said earlier, Minister Heather Humphreys was on duty for government yesterday.
4: Well, first of all, can I just say that this government takes full responsibility, and uh, I don't agree with your assertions there. Uh, The the Taoiseach and... uh, Yeah, the Taoiseach, you know, the Taoiseach... Minister Harris and I, we all want more guards uh, on, the, on the street. We want more guards on the beat in communities. and That's why we are recruiting more guards. Over 300 recru- recruits are in Temple More as we speak. We have new classes in every 11 weeks. and uh, I know that Minister Harris has spoken to the Commissioner and the Commissioner has assured him that he has uh, adequate resources uh, to police such protests. And the Commissioner says he has the operational integrity, integrity to police the process. So can I just give you a few stats on Garda's strength? Up, to, up from 12,800 in 2015 to just over 14,000 now. You said the Garda are under the resource. Yeah.
12: Uh, we, we can't get into conversation. No, look at, it, I'm, I'm giving
4: you us. some stats here. The number of Garda... That are we recruit, the number of people that have been recruited into the Gardaí Shea Khan are, rec- are increasing all the time. We are committed Thank to more Gardaí on the beat, on the Thank street. You.
3: Right, that's Minister Heather Humphreys reassuring all of us we have a, enough guards on the subject of the guards. Here's a separate issue that was raised yesterday.
2: I feel desperately we need as a legislator to have a debate about GSOC. What is going on at the moment is just outrageous the latest decision by them to prosecute a Garda for pursuing three members of a well-known criminal gang with over 200 convictions, because he did his duty and followed them until they went down the M7 motorway and unfortunately they got killed. He then went to the scene to try and help. Now. The people of this country are outraged at this. Over the last number of days, 32,000 has been raised on a GoFundMe page for this garden, mostly by his colleagues. I know this garden. I know, I am being very careful. I am being very careful. I know this garden to be a diligent worker and as diligent as they come. But, Minister, as I stand here and I can verify this as of now, he still does not know what he is being charged with. And we all know how the media had it before his family did. So, Minister, we need, as a legislator, to look at GSOC.
3: Labour's Alan Kelly. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire, Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. <laughs>
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.